Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. Hello, listeners. Thanks for tuning in to the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance podcast. You'll notice a difference in sound quality in this episode. We apologize for any disruption that may cause, but hope you enjoy the quality of the conversation with our guest in this episode, who is sure to provoke thought and inspire action. Welcome to the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance podcast. I'm your host, Patty Murphy, and I'm happy to welcome back to the show our guest in this episode, Charlie Black. Black, a co-founder of the transdisciplinary consultancy Zundis Global, along with retired Navy SEAL Commander David Sears, was featured on the podcast in early February 2020 in episode number 27, where we discussed leadership in a rapidly changing environment. Shortly after the episode aired, all of our lives were drastically impacted by world-changing events, including the tragic loss of life and economic effects of a global pandemic, to civil unrest. 2021 and so far 2022 have brought on significant worldwide challenges as well, such as America's chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan and the ongoing conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Since Black is a dynamic, transformative, and futures-oriented leader, With over 30 years of diverse global experience and proven talent for cultivating winning and resilient teams that attain favorable futures in an accelerating and turbulent world, the Leadership Under Fire team thought it would be fitting to invite him back on the show. Charlie, thank you so much for being here today. Good morning. And I have to acknowledge this is the first interview that I am doing in person since our year in review episode in the year 2020. And for listeners, it's May, 2022. Wow. (laughs) And I, speaking of the year in review episode, that is how we are ending up sitting here in person today. So yeah. Um, I'm very grateful that you are a loyal listener to the podcast (laughs) because last year in our 2021 year in review episode, I shared that I moved down to Tampa, Florida, and shortly after the surprised episode, me. I, I surprised a lot of people with that. <laughs> um, and I was so grateful that after that episode aired, you reached out right away. Yeah. Do you want to share more about that? Sure. And uh, I was surprised that you moved to Tampa. You, you live quite close to me. I was like, wow, how'd you get here? And then fortunately we were running one of our workshops. Mm-hmm. And so I invited you to attend and it was great to have you and um, for you to see me in a different kind of setting, mm-hmm. you know, pontificating on all sorts of things. <laughs> um, but more importantly, really for you to um, meet some new people in the area since you were new to there. So how, how do you think it went? Again, the word that keeps coming to mind is gratitude because it was mm-hmm. nice to connect with somebody that I was familiar with. I, I right. you know, obviously you're not a familiar face to me, right. but it was good to have somebody who is within my network to connect with and right. then ultimately help build those bridges like you said, to network with people in the area and just learn more about what this, you know, part of the world has to offer. But also we spoke about, um, you know, you mentioned the workshop, right? So it was the crisp thinking workshop and we're going to unpack that later in the episode. 
but it helped to, I, I can't even lie and say it really helped me refresh my memory on some things in terms of concepts and ideas because it had been so long since I had really sat down in a setting like that. Right. So it really was me relearning a lot. Well, we all need to take some time off mm -hmm. the treadmill and mm -hmm. learn, relearn, unlearn, you know, all those sorts of things. You know, we're all so busy. Yep. Um, I'm not, but other people are. Um, <laughs> you know, so I think being less busy is important. And I was listening to our previous interview on the way here today. And one of the things that came up in our conversation back then, which was the beginning of 2020. So very early in 2020, we spoke. And I had talked about speaking to somebody from the McChrystal group years ago, brought this idea to me that we often sacrifice the important for the immediate. Right. And I feel like that is exactly what I fell into post pandemic, sacrificing all those important things that we're supposed to be doing in terms of broadening our perspectives and right. reflecting because there was so much on the plate that was immediate. Right. And those immediate things, we, I, I think we sometimes feel are more important. And so it pushes the important things, mm -hmm. you know, next thing you know, it's two years later, you didn't do the thing that you had set out to do. Right. The days are long, the years are short. And I do want to acknowledge David Sears who was on episode number 75 of the podcast just before our 2021 year in review episode. Right. He was obviously part of the crisp thinking workshop. So it was so nice to meet him in person as well. Yeah. I mean, he is, you know, first and foremost, a friend, um, we served together and then, you know, we created you know, the company together, um, because we have shared, you know, view. So everything that I say, he, if he were sitting here, he would likely say the same exact thing, just using, perhaps more eloquent words, or, or I'm not sure. I tell him I'm the better looking of the two, but he's the Navy SEAL, so he gets all the credit. But, um, yeah, he's, he's wonderful to share, you know, basically my life with, right? Yeah. So work-life aren't separate in, in our world, and, um, you know, I choose to work with people that I like. Mm -hmm. I get the benefit of I don't have to work with people I don't like, and, you know, I see the world similarly, and so, you know, doing business together is great, right? Yeah. I really enjoyed, like I said, everything about the workshop right. and the best way for me to describe the workshop is to say, <laughs> I spent two days thinking about thinking. So can you now describe the format of the workshop to listeners and the key topics? Right. Yeah. I, I think thinking about your thinking, that's a pretty good description. You know, so Chris thinking workshop is a two day offering where we condense years of learning mm -hmm. in two days, right? Um, so it's pretty overwhelming for the participants, depending on where they're each individually coming from. We recognize that. And so the outcome of the workshop is different for you and for each individual. And so that's sort of the difficulty of the workshop itself and running it is there's not a clear beginning and ending for each individual, but they're all there together. So, uh, you know, crisp thinking that crisp fans for, you know, critical creativity, reflective reframing, iterative ideation systemic synthesis and possible paradoxical futures, right? So that's a whole lot of stuff. And, and, and it's a big bin and it's, it's like an onion, layers of an onion, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so what we really do is help people be more self-aware about the accelerating world around them, mm -hmm. help them dispel some of the assumptions that they might have about how much control they have about that world around them, and then give them some skills 
put them on a path to developing skills so they can navigate that. Because usually those that come to the workshop at the end of it, they're freaked out because they are self-aware and now they realize how much they're not in control of. Mm -hmm. And then they're like, Oh my God, what do I do? And I'm like, no, this is a good place to be. You know, at least you're not living in the matrix. You're aware of what is out there. And then, you know, we help push them in the direction where they can self-educate and they can then navigate, you know, that complex system. You used the word control just now. And I know that you've also used the terminology like change by design, right. which I kind of prefer over control. Okay. And I, and I also personally like this mantra of creating my own destiny Okay. in a very rapidly changing environment. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that the workshop, you both, you and Dave did a masterful job at synthesizing so much into a succinct way that was digestible and, you know, I was able to then use it immediately. I feel like. I hope so. Yeah. Um, you know, and for each individual, like I said, depending on where they're coming from, the bite of the elephant they take, some some are able to take a bigger bite of the elephant, some have to take, you know, smaller pieces. Um, but everybody's journey is an individual journey, right? Mm -hmm. And so there isn't a journey, there's an infinite number of journeys, right? So we're just trying to help each of those individuals uh, do that. So it's a lot more complicated than I think most people believe. And um, I don't know if I should thank you or blame you, and I don't even know. It can if be I'm... both. Remember, <laughs> A and B can both coexist at the same time. Well, I was just going to overshare once again because I learned that <laughs> sharing on the podcast benefits me. Shortly after the uh, workshop, I ultimately resigned from my full-time position and joined the Great Resignation. So that was a big yeah. bite of the elephant for Amazing. me. <laughs> Good for you. But acknowledging that the ability to adapt is critical for navigating complexity, what are your thoughts on how individuals can achieve proficiency at a plan and also build proficiency for when the plan fails in a myriad of different ways? Yeah, I think that's a good question. Um, planning is important, mm -hmm. right? I mean, you, you just can't go through life just responding to stimulus, right? You, you have to have some sense of where you're trying to go and some idea of how you think you might get there where I think Dave and I try to highlight in the workshop, which maybe you, you experienced, is that you also have to recognize the shortfalls of the plan, meaning a plan is based on assumptions, and those assumptions may be valid, but the world may change in such a way tomorrow, maybe six months, maybe a year from now, that that assumption is no longer valid. So are you continually reflecting upon your own thinking, mm -hmm. right, thinking about your own thinking, mm -hmm. in adapting your plan, or I think, most people tend to make the plan. Mm -hmm. It's rigid. Mm -hmm. It's like in concrete. Yep. And we ignore all the signals that tell me that I need to change it. Because doing the plan is hard. Yeah. Right? I mean, doing a plan, planning is hard. It's a lot of thinking. There's a lot of coordination, right? Whether you're doing it for yourself, a self-plan, or more importantly, an organizational plan, is really hard, right? A lot of energy. People do not want to change those things. So it's easier to ignore the signals of change and then just execute the plan right but then as i as we often say then you're doing the wrong thing really well mm -hmm. so the plan you're executing the plan exactly as you envisioned it but it now is out of context with the larger world mm -hmm. hmm. not so sure you're doing the right thing mm -hmm. 
I want to replace that question with organizations. We were kind of focused on individuals. So what does that look like at the organizational level? It's exponentially more difficult. Right. I mean, I would say exponentially, like there was a curve, <laughs> you know, it's almost a straight line, straight vertical line, yeah. right? Um, imagine you as an individual, how difficult it is for you to change your mind about mm -hmm. something. Mm -hmm. You know, the beginning of 2022, hey, I'm going to get fit this year. And I come up with a plan to get physically fit. Most people don't follow that plan more than 30 days, mm -hmm. right? Now imagine scale that to an organization and an organization is going to try to change its direction. Mm -hmm. Even a few degrees is a lot of energy, right? Imagine how much time and energy goes into just developing the plan to do that communicating the plan to do that all the way through the organization, extremely difficult, which is why 75, 80% of change initiatives in companies mm -hmm. fail. Mm -hmm. um, because they, I, I think they ignore these other factors that are at play because they're difficult. Mm -hmm. So we just wish them away. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that answers your question. It does. And I, also want to focus on critical thinking, right? Because that has to be part of planning, of course. Agreed. So as critical thinking requires judgment, can you describe the obstacles people must overcome to achieve objective, rational thinking? Objective, rational thinking. So I'm not sure that I actually agree if that exists. <laughs> um, in some contexts, yes. Meaning... I'm not sure that there's such a thing as objective mm -hmm. truth mm -hmm. because truth is a subjective thing. Mm -hmm. Fact is objective. The sky is blue, mm -hmm. right? We would all generally agree. Um, our perception of the weather is more subjective. Some people like it cloudy. Some people like it sunny, right? Like, so to say that that's an objective truth. So I think that humans need to recognize that the world is really a mosaic of kind of color. The world is really not black and white. It's not A or B, right? When we frame these rigid boundaries, however way we choose to do it, right, within whatever context, I think we limit our choices. Not intentionally so, but then as the world changes, we've created this box we've put ourselves in, right? This whole idea of think outside the box, right? <laughs> we have created this cognitive box that we've placed ourselves in, and it limits our ability to see our other choices, mm -hmm. right? So we self-constrain our own agency, which is, you know, a terrible thing. I mean, we're human, we're thinking yeah. beings, mm -hmm. and we're meaning-seeking beings, humans. And, and I think our innate nature is to explore the world, harness the world, you know, uh, learn about the world, right? And, and I think that um, in the modern, this age of reason, we've... Not that reason is not good, not that science is not beneficial, but it's insufficient in my view. Those are some pretty heady concepts. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate you unpacking them. In response to that, you put quite a bit of attention towards empathy, and I would also say self-awareness. Right. So in today's modern segmented society where, when, and how can people look to strengthen their skills to empathize with others? Well, first, it, it does start with self-awareness, right? So, so first and foremost, you have to understand what is it that you believe about yourself and yourself in the world, right? And everyone's going to make 
value judgments about my my race, my religion, my identity group, my profession, right? You're going to make judgments about how you compare it to others, right? You're going to order it in different ways, right? And then government tries to do that too, or governments try to do that. And then depending on which party is in control, you know, that changes, right? None of that is, is, is permanent in my mind. Um, but I do think that empathy is critical. And I would say that we shouldn't confuse empathy with sympathy, though. Empathy means I am who I am. I recognize how you see yourself. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and it doesn't mean I have to agree with you, mm-hmm. right? And I think sometimes where, at least in the current context of some of the social turbulence that exists today, mm-hmm. that we have conflated sympathy with objective truth. We've conflated empathy with sympathy, right? So to more directly answer your question, I believe it's important for me as an individual human to recognize that you see yourself in the world differently than the way I see you in the world. And that it's okay that we see it differently. And that it does me no good and it does you no good for me to try to convince you otherwise or you to convince me otherwise. Just accept that that is, it, it, it just is, right? And then if I can do that, now I can better understand the things that you do, right? So when I see you do a certain behavior, the cause of that, I can then make more qualified judgments be like, oh, well, she believed X, she's doing Y. Okay, that makes sense given where she's coming from. Again, I don't have to agree with it, but I can then better understand that it has nothing to do with me, right? And I think if we could get there, as a society, there would be less tension between groups because right now I think when I observe you do a behavior, I assume it has something to do with me. And in many cases, it has nothing to do with me, right? Um, whether that's at the geostrategic global scale between countries or whether that be three people walking down the street, right? It's, it's, it's relatively, I think, this applies across the board. This is such a larger conversation that we could be having. Sure. But... I, again, I liked uh, the way that you harness the power of brevity. And, um, I'm not so sure there was clarity, though. <laughs> but I think what you were just sharing is um, succinctly represented in that Aristotle quote, I believe, which is something to the effect of being able to entertain one ideas without accepting them. Yes. Simply put. Very well done. Thank I you. Like Speaking of quotes that I like, retired commander of the L.A. Sheriff's Department, Sid Heal, was featured on episode number 20 of the podcast, and he's contributed to the FDNY's mental performance initiative. And during the rollout of MPI, he succinctly said, these concepts are universal. The application is contextual. And I thought the same thing when I was in your workshop. So first, let me ask your thoughts on that statement. Um, I don't don't know him, and I imagine his years of experience on law enforcement have revealed for him a sense of of the human landscape in a way that maybe is different than my own right not neither better nor worse i think generally i agree um i do remain skeptical of anything that is considered universal Mm -hmm. um, at least as it applies to humans Mm -hmm. and so uh, the more i study the more i tend to strengthen that belief or better yet the more I study, the more evidence there is that that belief might be might be correct. Therefore, universal truths I'm skeptical of. 
I do agree with the second part, though, about context, because um, I think that context is everything. Within a given context, you can have a universal truth. You can have um, a universal concept. You can have things that are objectively factual, right? Mm -hmm. But in a different context, that, that may not be true, right? Um, and so I think that that's the point of recognizing that we as individual humans mm -hmm. are in this world that we're not in control of, and it's changing, therefore the context is changing, and I, and I think the rate of change is the problem, is that the rate of change is accelerating, and there's lots of evidence of this, and, and no matter which domain you look at, and so we're having a difficulty keeping up with that, right? Mm -hmm. So now there's this misalignment, which I think has contributed to angst, yeah. turbulence, you know, all these other terms that are out there. I appreciate that answer. But I want to take some time to talk about your contributions to the Leadership Under Fire endeavor. So as a frequent contributor to the Leadership Under Fire online leadership development course, with a focus on organizational leadership versus tactical leadership, is there a distinction to be made between tactical or unit level leadership and organizational leadership? And does this type of leadership require a different path in terms of education, preparation, and development? Yes and yes. <laughs> um, first and foremost, I, I'm, I'm very fortunate to be associated with leadership under fire. I mean, you all are doing some amazing things. And so I'm just thrilled to get to be a small part of that. To answer the question, I think I think any tactical leader, whether it be in the fire service, law enforcement, the military, any kind of you know organization like that, that's what they sign up to do. That's like fun, right? Um, and you aspire to be the team leader or the you know whatever the tactical level leader is, right? Those are skills that you can see from your entry level, and you can aspire to be that. Um, when I was just at the National Fire Academy two weekends ago, this was a part of the discussion I had there with. Um, fire service leaders from around the country. And I said, hey, all of you would love to go back and be an engine captain or a truck lieutenant because you know how to do that. That's fun. That's firefighting. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to be the deputy chief in charge of logistics, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that's like, who? Like, that's not. Yawn. That's not what we signed <laughs> up to do, right? Like, um, and so, and so to your question is, I think that, uh, the education and training for tactical leadership, more training, less education. And as you move into organizational leadership positions, more education, less training. Because the context is enlarged, mm -hmm. and it's actually the diversity of contexts within that organization, the scope of that increases, mm -hmm. right? So, so your approaches to affect change or to affect a certain action there isn't a general concept like there's concepts mm -hmm. and you have to be able to make the choice which one should you use within which context right um on the tactical level the, the variation of those are you can master them at some point right you can go from an amateur or a novice to an apprentice and you can master being a truck lieutenant mm -hmm. in a certain amount of time in a certain type of city okay, I know what I'm supposed to do with these types of fires, right? Like, mm -hmm. you can master that. I mean, that's what the promotion thing they test for, right. right? I'm not sure that they test for the right things, what makes you a chief, just because you're a good truck captain, even if you're decorated for valor and you did all these 
wonderful things on the fire ground or in a complex emergency, or in the case of the, the Marine Corps, you're, you're a wonderful tactical leader, a company commander, and you're decorated for valor in battle. In both instances, I'm not convinced at this point that that necessarily provides the stepping stone for you to be a higher level organizational leader. Mm -hmm. I think there's competing evidence that that's not the case. And so what do we do about that? Organizationally, that's not how we generally are structured. We, we believe it's this linear path, right? Mm -hmm. But what does being a truck lieutenant have to do with being the chief of logistics? Mm -hmm. Most of the fire services would be like, I mean, I'm convinced that some small departments, I mean, it's just organizational leadership. If I can learn enough about firefighting, maybe you bring in someone who's an organizational leader and you teach them about firefighting. Do they have to be a firefighter to be the chief? Well, that was my next question. In oh. your view, do you have to be a solid tactical unit leader to be an effective organizational leader? And this, this it, you know, resonates across industries. I think even Agreed. Google did a big study on, you know, you don't have to be a subject matter expert to be an effective manager. Right. Um, and I, I used manager. Yeah, I know you did. <laughs> so, so at the organizational leader, leader level, management is a skill that you have to have that at the tactical level is less important. Uh, at the organizational level, management is very, very important because you're talking about a lot of resources. But leadership, mm -hmm. meaning inspiring, empowering, developing your subordinates mm -hmm. who are actually doing the tasks of the organization is more important. I mean, so, so I still believe that management is a subset of leadership. Mm -hmm. You know, all the business schools around the country do a good job of teaching skills to do management. Mm -hmm. Few of the business schools, um, and they would probably disagree, but if you look at the curriculums, which I have, there's not a lot of classes on leadership. So, so that's sort of the challenge is, so then where do you get the leaders? Well, I'm just going to take the proven tactical leader and then yeah. try to transform right. those individuals into organizational leaders. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, in the fire service, there's not really an edu education is not incentivized. You know, how do I prepare the tactical leader to take a step up to become an organizational leader? Sending them to the executive fire officer program is insufficient. It's great. But the number of graduates of that is relatively small compared to the entire fire service of America, right? So I, I think there's there's a gap there. I just want to take a second to remind listeners of your connection to the fire service. It hasn't just been working with firefighters. You have um, yeah, my entire family right. going back forever. Um, <laughs> have been firemen um, or firefighters. My grandfather was a fire chief. My dad was a fire mm -hmm. chief. My brother was a deputy fire chief. Yeah. My cousins paid firefighters. So growing up, mm -hmm. I, you know, I grew up in fire stations. And so I understand sort of as like this ethnographic explorer. I've observed them in the native, you know, uh, in, in, in the wild, but I was never one of them. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of an interesting inside out perspective. Right. Um, so I'm not sure whether that's good or bad. Um, it can be both. Yeah. Hey, you, <laughs> you, you get a net, you pass. So I think, you know, my sense is, is that it gives me enough insight that I can, I, I understand the language that I can communicate, but I can give them an interpretation of what I see that they don't see mm -hmm. to maybe, to maybe help themselves. And that's at least what I try to do. Um, you know, when I speak to fire service leaders is try to say, okay, 
here's what I observe about you. Mm -hmm. um, I think I'm placing you in the right context. And based on that, here's what I think you don't see that you should consider. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And you were just describing the lack of development in the fire service um, in terms of leadership development. Is there anything else you wanted to unpack about that? And and also maybe your experience in the USMC in terms of this? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it's a fair comparison to compare the military to the fire service, okay. right? Um, I think there's a lot of similarities. The difference in the in the military is that, uh, at least now, it's it's uh, it is very hierarchical and there's there's more authority to compel people to behave a certain way. But the culture making of you know, my experience in the Marine Corps, the Marine Corps is very good at culture making. Mm -hmm. I mean, you are transformed into the United States Marine when you go to Paris Island or OCS or to San Diego. You go there as one type of human, you leave there as different. You're still a human, but you're imbued with these new values that that never escape you. It doesn't matter if you serve nine months or, or 30 years. You know, I'm not, I, I don't know enough about the fire service that, that that's universal, that that's a universal concept for the fire service. Generally, it seems that that might be so, mm -hmm. though anecdotally, my own experience, I've met many firefighters who, to them, it's purely a job. It's not this internalized desire to serve, and then others it is. And so I think that the necessity of both the fire service and the military uh, demand leadership. Because whether it's two Marines on a listening post, alone and afraid, out on the edge of some area, trying to detect the, the, the movement of the enemy to their position, or, you know, two firefighters in a hallway with a hose line, right? Like, if there's two individuals, one has to be in charge. It doesn't matter what their actual official rank are. So in, in, in my Marine example, it could be two privates. Mm -hmm. One of those Marines is in charge. And culturally, they know that. In the fire service, there's two firefighters. One's from a truck company and one's from an engine company in the room. One of them has to be in charge. Culturally, I don't know enough about the fire service to know do they recognize that one of them has to be in charge mm -hmm. and that one is the leader? Not not by rank, right? But by culture that that for them to function appropriately in this dangerous environment, one of them has to take responsibility for the other. That makes sense. Yeah. I want to talk more about culture. How can culture positively or negatively impact operations at both the unit and organizational level? Culture is everything. And so my definition, going back to your question about organizational leadership, I think organizational leadership is about, so if I'm an organizational leader, my job is to make leaders. And you know what leaders do? Leaders make culture. Because the biggest impact in the fire service is not the fire chief. The biggest impact every day is the company officer who is interacting with the firefighters or the paramedics or whomever. Every moment of their shift, right? So... It's great that the chief can put some policies out that they put on the board that may or may not be read, right? But if you're my lieutenant, your example influences me every day, positively or negatively, and you instill in me 
the way of doing things. What's what are the accepted norms and behaviors of a truckie or of an engine guy or whatever that may be, right? And I don't know that we always recognize that. That that's really the chief thinks they're making stuff happen, mm-hmm. and they're like, no, 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 you're indirectly. That's the difference between the tactical leadership and the organizational, right? One is indirect, one is very direct, right? So I think that culture is everything. It's really like the connecting tissue. If the culture is flawed or is not aligned with, or if it is, if the culture is um, fostering behaviors that are incongruent with organizational success. Now, as we talk about change, if culture is sustaining behaviors that are incongruent with where you're trying to go, then you're going to have some challenges, right? Which then means you have to change culture. You don't change the wiring diagram. I don't, put you in charge of change, like you have to change culture. And so to change culture, I have to use the frontline leaders to do that, right? The only way I can do that is through education, which means I have to take you out of service and I have to build into the training program or into the schedule time for you to be educated. I have to value that more than you responding to an emergency Mm -hmm. because otherwise the culture will continue in the direction that it's going, and then the chief, he or she is trying to take the organization in a new direction, and they're befuddled because they have no idea. I've, I've published all these policies, and I said turn right, but everybody's still going straight at it, and they don't understand why. I have a lot of thoughts on that, but do you have examples or thoughts on how tactical unit leaders can overcome negative cultural stigmas? When you say negative cultural stigmas, I think what we've just been talking about in this section, which is that leadership development is not prioritized, even at the tactical level, because it's not fun and it's not interesting and it's not valued to take that. It could be fun and interesting Mm -hmm. and it could be valued, Mm -hmm. right? Like Um, it isn't cool. Right. But I guarantee you that if you tied it to promotions, everyone would sign up, Mm -hmm. right? But right now... Going to some leadership course is a nice to have, and they might sort of, and when you put it in HR department to be responsible for developing people, and you delegate that away from executive leaders, I mean, think about the term human resources. You're treating people as like some standing reserve, like gasoline. Yeah. Like, like, no, no, no. It, how about we call it talent management, which is a core function of organizational leadership. Therefore, the chief, he or she themselves, should be that should be their primary focus right so back to your question i think that tactical leaders can self-educate i mean these individuals who are in the fire service on the front line they're they're intelligent right it doesn't matter what their education level is i mean they can have a, they can have a ged it doesn't matter if they can read there's a wealth of resources out there to if they are desiring to truly develop themselves and others it's possible i mean you've seen it you can visit dysfunctional organizations, but if you go down to the tactical level, you will find centers of excellence. And you're like, wow, how did that happen? Despite the organization being dysfunctional, this subordinate entity is excelling. And in most cases, I think you will find it's because of leadership and instilling and demonstrating everything that leadership entails which allows subordinates to be empowered, to take risk, to to exercise individual agency within a given context, right? When you do those things, 
you tend to have success when you try to overly control things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, particularly from the top down, mm -hmm. it doesn't quite work, which demonstrates why um, when federal government policy tries to be too rigid, there's rebellion because there, if the, something that applies in Alaska may not fit in Maine or Florida, right? It's not universal. Back to the universal thing. Mm -hmm. You just provided the perfect segue into my next question, which has to do with the pandemic. Okay. So I think it's safe to say that the pandemic demonstrated that large legacy entities are often incapable of responding to the speed of change in an accelerating world. And the pandemic also exacerbated existing problems in healthcare systems, many of which connect back to a greater need for attention to human factors. So based on your perspective, how were the strategic and workforce related issues of the pandemic navigated well and how were they navigated poorly? I think overall they were not navigated well. Um, and I, and, and I don't mean this in a disparaging way because the system behaved the way it was designed and there was assumptions, you know, going back to our earlier discussion, there were assumptions made that led to that design within a, a given context and then whether it be healthcare or whatever it may be. But the context has changed. And it was always changing. The pandemic just added some extra fuel to the fire, right, to, for it to accelerate even quicker. And I think that's why people were trying all sorts of different things. Many of them failed. That's, that's to be expected. There were some that were hoping, you know, you heard the former term, we're going to, you know, the new normal. Mm -hmm. You know, in my view, there, there is no there is no normal because we're in the age of perpetual change. Like this isn't going to go back to the way it once was. I mean, the genie's out of the bottle. Like, like mm -hmm. you can never step in the same river twice, mm -hmm. right? So it looks like the same river, mm -hmm. but the water molecules are not the same. They're already downstream, right? And so I think that large entities, again, going back to this challenge of organizational change, first you have to even know that you need to change, right? So what we haven't talked about is sense-making. So how does an organization, how is it aware? So back to our even first conversation, how is an organization self-aware, mm -hmm. right? Like how does it know that its context is changing? How is it changing? At what rate is it changing? So that it can then use organizational leadership to change course and speed of the ship. You know, if we were to use that, you know, metaphor, right? How do I oh, I see the iceberg ahead, how do I steer away from that, right? In most cases, organizations, it's sort of like driving a sports car in the mountains with no headlights on at night. Like, we, <laughs> we don't know what's ahead because we presume we're sort of driving, and you saw this slide when we came to the class, we're looking in the rearview mirror and the road behind us is perfectly straight, like I-40 in the southwest United States, but ahead the road's curvy, and so we presume because the road's straight behind us, that it's straight ahead. The past doesn't predict the future, right? And so I'm not sure that we're forward-looking enough. We spend an awful lot of time analyzing what already happened. Mm -hmm. But we know that in human systems, because of individual agency and the complexity of how people interact with one another, certainly when there's all these uh, external variables like the virus and other things that came to play, why would we assume that what happened last year is going to work this year? Like, like we should start fresh, right? But we don't because of, you know, organizational bureaucracy, which mm -hmm. are intended, rightfully so, 
to have repetitive behavior, right? So the real challenge is organizational leadership, being aware that things have changed and then me affecting change in my own organization. So some have done well, some have not done some so well. Now I see the trend towards trying to go back to what. what. Right. So a lot of people work remotely, right? Mm -hmm. Obviously not in the first responder business that you know, mm -hmm. can't respond to a fire from your house. Mm -hmm. But now everybody's being forced to go back to work and you're like, why you've proven over the last two years that your company can be just as productive maybe even more so maybe even more so mm -hmm. right in saving and overhead and all sorts of other costs right but no 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 we're going to go back to the office and you're like um and in some cases that might be the right choice in some cases i'm not convinced the real question is is what's driving that decision right in that particular context long answer for a very short question. <laughs> but is there anything you want to say about that was navigated well? Um, I think that if you buy into this idea that I'm offering, that local context is the most important, right? So organizationally, depending on your geographic scope of your organization, right? If you're a multinational corporation or if you're FDNY, right? I mean, all the boroughs, they're not the same. No. The types of fires are not the same. The populations aren't the same, right? And so change in a complex system occurs on the periphery, on the edges, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. The only way to see those signals and changes is at the local context, which means you have to depend even more so on your subordinate, least experienced leaders, which means I, as the chief, have to relinquish not responsibility and accountability, but I have to relinquish authority for others to do things that I want done, right? And I have to trust that it's, it's no different than the first responder showing up to the fire, let's say the battalion chief, and, and he, he assesses a fire a certain way, and he or she calls a second or third alarm. You don't question that, right? Because you're trusting the judgment. So on the, on the emergency, we do this. Organizationally, when the chief says, I think X, Y, and Z policy is dumb, or it's not going to work in this context, he or she is told to shut up and color, right? Like, why is it any different? But you trust he or she on the fire ground that we need a second alarm at the local context. Now they're interpreting a policy in the local context, and they're ignored, right? Mm -hmm. But I do think at the local level, there was a lot of success, because I think yeah. there was really good leaders who recognized that mm -hmm. whatever the hierarchy is telling me is misaligned with mm -hmm. what I'm observing. Mm -hmm. And so, but I think a lot of people went out on a limb, like they, they took risk to do that organizationally. And some organizations empowered that and rewarded that, some did not. Right. And so fortunately, I, I think that first responders tend to just do what's necessary, yeah. you know, because we're talking about other humans who are suffering, yeah. right? And they're gonna do what's necessary in most cases, mm -hmm. um, thank God, mm -hmm. right? But I'm not sure that's the case with healthcare and some other. But as you get further removed from an emergency, I'm not right. sure that's true. Okay, a lot of food for thought there. I want to move to late May of 2020. After months in quarantine, civil unrest ensued in many U.S. cities following George Floyd's death while in police custody. Based on your experience and research on decision-making under stress, what are one or two areas where you think law enforcement can stand to benefit from increased attention to human factors and human performance? Wow. Huge. Huge. Um, so 
other than leadership under fire, I also advise a friend of mine who runs a thing called the Trinity Project. He's a former Massachusetts state policeman and former Green Beret. And so much like Jason's efforts to bring rank order leadership ideas to the fire service, uh, Mike Catone, Trinity Project is trying to bring some of his insights as a Green Beret and working in and among populations to American policing. And so he's, he's retired and he's full steam ahead. And so I'm trying to help him as much as I can. Um, I do think that likely more so than the fire service, the law enforcement is very rigid in the way that they approach policing, right? Mm -hmm. And in both cases, is it important to prevent crime or to respond to crime? Is it more important to prevent fire or respond to fires, right? This gets to a cultural thing because depending on when the individual joined those respective services, right? I joined to fight fire or I joined to respond to, you know, some violent act and I'm the police officer and I'm going to bring law and order, right? I didn't join to go to the elementary school and talk to kids about, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, and so there's a cultural piece. This goes back to our discussion about culture making, right? There's a very strong culture in both the fire service and in, the, in American policing that have a way of how they see themselves in the world. There clearly is a huge misalignment between law enforcement's mentality and the world that we live in today. And there's always going to be tension between law enforcement and certain communities. And that's, that's the history of the United States. So, so I don't know that that's going to change. I think you can improve that condition, certainly. But more specifically, I think, you know, we are, I call it, we're the prisoner of the Enlightenment, right? Like the Western liberal order, we have this idea of control. That's back to our earlier discussion, where think about law and order. That's what law enforcement, right? right. Think about that. Like that term is representative of a culture, right? Can you impose order? Should you impose order? Maybe the order that exists that you perceive as dystopian is the natural order of things. I don't know. Um, clearly, if you go into the inner cities, the behaviors of those systems, if you were to look at them systemically, they behave the way that culturally they behave. And it may not align with some vision of some politician, mm -hmm. but it works, right? It works for those individuals. So trying to make them conform to something that doesn't culturally align, I think creates this disconnect. So it goes back to our question about empathy, right? So if I'm a law enforcement officer, the idea of um, mental performance is really important. And one of those aspects is my ability to empathize with the citizens, not even the citizens, just individual humans who are in my area, right? And recognizing how they see themselves in themselves, how they see the world, and how it might be different than me, mm -hmm. right? And it might explain some of their behavior, and then maybe we can reduce some of this tension. Mm -hmm. And back to my, my friend Mike Catone, what he did in Springfield, Massachusetts, in the inner city is, you know, he's a Caucasian in a very minority area, and he was able to build trust relationships in, in, in the community mm -hmm. where they saw the police as good, not bad. And then, unfortunately, a lot of our communities, that's not the case. And I think we can improve that. And I think that's a law enforcement issue, not an inner city issue. I don't blame the citizens. I blame, I don't blame, but, but I think that government has a responsibility to respond to its citizens, not the other way around. So far, this seems all very philosophical. <laughs> 
but I want to boil it down to the human factor that we keep bringing up. So at that time, based on my perspective, crisp thinking and human factors science was largely absent from the conversation about law enforcement across the United States in media, in political, and in legislative circles. It still is. Specifically, how individuals are impacted by stress. It still boggles my mind that this is not at the forefront of the conversation, both law enforcement and civilians. So why would that be, and how can it be improved in the future? So yes, I agree with you, and I, I think it's still absent, other than small examples, but by and large, it's absent. Um, there are very good examples around the country, both fire service and law enforcement, where people are trying to do this. I think part of the challenge is that we live in a, in a republic, and, and we have a form of government where our first responders are provided guidance by elected officials. Those elected officials are freely elected and in in theory they represent all of your constituents, in theory only, right? So back to let's boil it down, they don't, we we know that. And and it's not necessarily left or right party, it's Mm -hmm. all, it's a lot more complex than that, certainly as you get to the local level. And so if they don't make it a priority, then there's not the resources law enforcement or the fire service i would offer that both of those are under resourced significantly so it's easy for me to tell a bunch of fire chiefs hey you should invest in education and they're like okay charlie i agree with you but like how am i supposed to do that i don't have any money mm-hmm. or i don't have enough people so that patty can work while this other person's off for a day to get a day of education right i don't have enough I don't have enough personnel because I can't afford enough personnel, right? Mm-hmm. In most cases, they would offer that they can barely respond to the emergencies in a response mode, nonetheless, try to anticipate and get ahead of you, right? Mm-hmm. And so to your question, I think that the American people need to demand this of our elected leaders and make this a priority. I don't know what it's going to take. I think American history demonstrates that it takes catastrophic failure for us to respond to things. Know, Pearl Harbor, 9/11, you know, whatever it might be, uh, and then we usually respond with a bureaucratic answer that's, uh, you know, a top-down sort of thing, which isn't helpful. That just adds more bureaucracy, right? How do we, how do we give, you know, for example, I would, I would much rather get rid of some of the functions at federal law enforcement level, that money, and somehow push that money and those resources to local not even state, but local level law enforcement and first responders in my own county right here, just north of Tampa, you know, it's growing so rapidly, they don't have enough equipment and firefighters Mm. just to respond to emergencies in terms of the, they're not coming close to the NFPA standards, I don't think, in terms of response times and that sort of thing. And everyone's aware of it and they're battling with the elected officials trying to, but but how do you catch up, right? Um, It's a challenge. At this time, I want to talk about America's withdrawal from Afghanistan. Okay. I want to acknowledge that the withdrawal from Afghanistan in August of 2021 was less than ideal. And first, are there any thoughts you'd like to share? And second, how can more favorable outcomes of war be achieved? Well, that's kind of a loaded question. I know. Um, So from a grand strategy perspective, I think we should have left Afghanistan a long time ago. I went there right after 9-11 personally. Why did we go there? In theory, to 
find Al Qaeda who attacked the United States and you know attacked the towers in DC, seek retribution, bring them to justice, however way you want to shape it, deny them sanctuary. Nowhere was the initial mission to build some Jeffersonian democracy among the peoples of a place that we call Afghanistan. We tried though for you know two decades. Maybe we should have learned from others' mistakes. Um, now, policymakers have a lot of hard choices. So you know, um, you know whether this president made the right choice or not. You know, history will will vote on that. I, I certainly think we should have left after Bin Laden was killed. I think we should have left and let the Afghan people choose their own destiny. They always have. I think they likely always will. The execution of it was terrible, right? And I have personal friends who were very senior leaders there on the ground. There were political constraints. You know, there, there's a lot of things at play there. So I don't pass any judgment, and I applaud them for, you know, the difficult circumstances they were in. And the Marines and soldiers and sailors and everyone who were there and our coalition brothers and sisters, um, they, did a, they did heroic. And I don't think most people in America really understand how difficult the circumstances were. Um, the news, or what we call the news, which I don't really think there is such a thing, um, but the coverage of those activities were not all-inclusive, and I'm not sure that the average American has a really good sense of how terrible it really was. Um, and so, you know, I thank all those people who, you know, they saved a lot of people's lives. I'm not convinced that we can export democracy, you know, that sort of thing. So, um, you know, that's when you get into this idealistic mm -hmm. This goes back to my discussion about I believe in individual agency. If the Afghans choose to be Taliban and, and adhere to some culture that historically is aligned to their local context, I can empathize with that. Right? Mm -hmm. I don't agree that they don't let women go to school, mm -hmm. but who am I to impose my way of life on them that has historically been such for however long? Right? So. So I struggle with that, right? Because I believe that men and women are equal, right? I, I believe that in America, and that's what we stand for. Where I struggle is how do we, how's that overlay in these other local contexts and what's possible and not possible? That's where I personally struggle. I mean, um, did I answer the question? You answered or part of the question, okay. and I want to first say thank you for your candor. <laughs> and I'll segue into the next question with a reminder of what I previously asked about favorable outcomes okay. of war, because currently there's this conflict between Russia and Ukraine. So perhaps mm -hmm. we can pivot now to this, unless there's something else you want to say about it. No, yeah, I mean, this question about war is, I don't know that there's such a thing as a favorable outcome of war, mm -hmm. right? Um, without getting too theoretical, as you say, I mean, armed conflict between states or people, right? It doesn't matter whether it's a country or just a group of people that have a shared ideal. We call it war again. That's that's a that's a Western framing. Is that the norm of human civilization? I mean, if we go back all the way to Homo sapiens, they destroyed the Neanderthals. I mean, we've been killing each other mm -hmm. or other species for eternity. So, when you say can we achieve favorable outcomes, it depends on who we are. There's always going to be winners and losers, but that's temporal and that's contextual. As a nation state, as the United States of America. Certainly, we could have more favorable outcomes. Are we talking about militarily? Are we talking about politically? War for us is an extension of politics, right? Like, our government chooses to achieve some sort of interest 
and in some instances we use military power to contribute to achieving that right so you could achieve the military part but not the political part or the military part can fail but you can still achieve the political outcome right so it gets really complicated as it relates to ukraine so let's go back to afghanistan so you have to withdraw was terrible ugly we could have planted there are a whole lots of things that could have been better right but for our adversaries if you want to call them that putin the russian federation and g's communist party that has captive of a country called china um, in my view as our adversaries we when we left afghanistan we made things more difficult for them right so if you look at this longitudinally though the short term was ugly and nasty and messy long term we've caused them challenges because before china's been exporting copper and doing all they're they're extracting all sorts of resources from afghanistan we secured that for them we were paying the price for them to extract that stuff essentially right but they're an adversary now they have to make choices and you're already seeing chinese workers being killed there's all sorts of other problems right so now let's shift to ukraine longitudinally i don't think that putin's desires have ever diverged. I think we just stopped paying attention, mm. right? So when 9-11 happened and we focused on Islamic terrorism, right, who we believe at the time had attacked America and was this existential threat to America, I don't think it's an existential threat. Uh, certainly a threat. Um, the towers came down. America still existed. Like, change, but not gone. Putin did see an existential extinction of the Soviet Union. He experienced it, right? This goes back to the empathy. I don't agree with him. I think he's his values and everything that he stands for are completely different than me. But I can empathize and understand his behavior, right? And it's never changed. But we stopped paying attention. So during those 20 years that we were chasing Islamic terrorists, he was still pursuing his interests everywhere. And we paid very little attention because our priority was Islamic terrorism mm -hmm. and not him. So when he went into Georgia, uh, we, uh, when he did Crimea, we sort of, uh, but now because Afghanistan's over, we don't have anything else to focus on. So now all, all, all of a sudden the sky is falling. I do believe that the Ukrainian people deserve much better. I mean, I, 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 I do sympathize, not just empathize. I mean, it's terrible what's happening to them. Do I think the, government of ukraine do i sympathize no do i think they're the um the bright shining city on the hill and represent i mean you know Zelensky, in my view and many of the listeners will completely disagree with me you know he's not george washington like he's not the epitome of of democracy before that country was invaded look there's a reason they're not a member of the eu there's a reason why they have one of the highest rates of human trafficking, arms trafficking, corruption, lack of an independent judiciary. All of his local opponents are in jail, right? Like, that just is. Like, I'm not passing, it's not derogatory. This, it just is, this is the context of what exists. So now we're in this position where our adversary, Putin, is doing something so we feel like well, if Putin's the bad guy, then therefore the Ukraine's the good guy. Well, it's possible that they're both bad guys, right? Or one is badder than the other one. But, but my point is, what interests 
and it gets complicated with NATO. And, and if you're in NATO and you live in Poland, again, geography matters. Context matters, right? We're across the Atlantic Ocean. Mm-hmm. They're living right there. So I, I recognize that those differences, I, I think we misunderstand what's going on there. I want to focus on the boots on the ground, though, and ask you what the spirit and resolve of Ukrainian forces, first responders, and healthcare providers communicate to the rest of the world. This goes back to the individual agency thing, right? Or culture. So Ukraine is a nation. They have their own language. They have their own interpretation of their own history, which Putin doesn't like, right? He doesn't agree with their history. Um, they have their, you know, their own language is a big deal. Right. I mean, some of them speak Russian, but Ukrainian is a separate language in and of it, distinct among itself. Right. Again, their own interpretation of history. That is a unifying piece of their culture. Right. That identifies who they are in the world. So it is worth preserving that for themselves. Therefore, they're fighting so they can set aside their internal differences right now. Why they're opposed to this external this Putin invasion. Right. I think this demonstrates the power of individual agency. I think it demonstrates the, the, the strength of culture. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is something that Putin doesn't understand mm-hmm. because he's doing the authoritarian thing. Everything that I'm telling you that is wrong, he's trying to do. He's trying to do the top down. He's trying to control versus many of the Ukrainians, Ukrainians who are fighting. There's no real, at least at the beginning of this conflict, there was not real orchestration. This was groups of people banding together, shared local context, deciding together, somebody stepping up to be the leader, right? Not appointed, but emerged, and then them taking action against invading forces, sometimes with uniform military, sometimes not. Lots of coverage of first responders. I mean, it's pretty phenomenal. You see this stuff, not just in Kiev and other places where there's been rockets, artillery, and other things, and Minutes after that barrage ends, you know, there's first responders that are digging people out, rescuing them, I mean, putting their lives truly right. at risk. I mean, imagine FDNY, you know, responding to a fire, but at the same time, at any moment, you might be attacked. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. pretty impressive. So I, I think that it goes back to culture and their identification with their own national identity. And I think that's why they'll, they'll continue to exist, that, that they're not. Putin will not win in terms of eliminating them. I think the journalists that are out right now covering this conflict, including Lindsay Adario, who is part of the Leadership Under Fire Network, are doing extremely important humanitarian work, in my opinion. But you had mentioned news earlier, and, and based on my experience in the industry, news and information are two different things. Right. News is something I define as new and noteworthy and information communicates knowledge okay so do you think russia's ambitions are clearly understood as we see this conflict in the headlines by who is the question meaning does our government understand what he's trying to do i I don't know my interpretation of from what i can glean from our press coverage and Mm -hmm. you know is that our government doesn't fully appreciate even before the invasion and then during these actions that our government doesn't fully understand why Putin, there's a lack of empathy 
on why he might be doing what he's doing. So if you don't even understand why someone's doing something, then how are you going to try to deter it, change it, stop it, right? And I think that that's changed over the last, you know, 60 days. And I'm a little bit worried that now our government might see this as an opportunity to get rid of Putin, which that concerns me because at least we know who he is. Um, we have a sense of the oligarchs that are around him. We understand, we have a sense, I think, of how his government works. If he's removed and there's this complete black hole, what might emerge might be worse. I, I, I don't know. This goes back to the, the, the idea of what local context will be better or worse, right? It's not going to be something that we impose. So you're going to take the guardrails off and then whatever's going to happen is you, you own some responsibility for that. Like we did that in Iraq, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm just saying was gotten rid of, and then this insurgency came out of nowhere, and we were surprised. We're responsible for that. Same thing would happen there. So I, I'm a little bit nervous about that, to be quite honest. Yeah, do you think it's possible to predict the future of the war? No. I, I think you can look at major drivers in the system, and you can make some reasonable near-term guesses about possible things that might occur, but there's so many variables at play you know, I would never use the word predict, you know, that I, I, I never use that word. Maybe anticipate the farther we look out in time, the more opaque it's going to be. And it's so dynamic right now. And I have friends on the ground there now. There's quite a few former Marines and special operators that I'm aware of who are doing some, in some cases, like you mentioned, they're providing, trying to just get aid and medical supplies to the front lines because much of what we're doing as a U.S. government is being delivered to Western Ukraine, either through Romania or Poland, but it's not getting to where the fighting is. Mm. And so it's a big country. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like you're talking about hundreds of miles. And so we have U.S. citizens over there who are, you know, trying to do good things despite, you know, a lack of policy on our government's part. Well, thank you for everything you've been sharing so far today. <laughs> We're, we're winding down now. Okay. All right. We're winding down. Gotcha. <laughs> and to um, sort of move into a more positive note, not to say that it's been totally negative, but uh, I want to acknowledge that you're a self-proclaimed futurist. So can you define the meaning of that for our listeners? Most futurists really are conflated with technologists, right? Meaning people who are they're, they're into cutting-edge technology. Mm -hmm. um, to me, technology is human-derived, so that's just a small aspect of it. I consider myself a futurist because I'm trying to look beyond the headlights and trying to make sense of the signs and signals of external change and then what that might mean for us, we humans, right? And then help organizations or individuals then make sense of that, make judgments about where they think they want to go, and then help them chart a course, right? So not a plan, it's really um, what's, what's the azimuth I'm going to set off on, knowing that the system's going to continue to evolve and I'm going to have to then change again, right? It's going to be a continual assessment. Does this self-identity as a futurist influence your optimism? Because I would describe you as an optimist. No, I think I'm optimistic. Yeah. Um, um, I'm, I'm discouraged by pessimistic views. I recognize that the world's crazy, right? I'll just use simple... I accept that that's just human nature. So I don't see it as a negative when things are dynamic and ever changing and sometimes things are opaque. 
that makes a lot of people very uncomfortable. And I, I have come over many years to just embrace that and mm -hmm. say, okay, that's not going to change. I can't change any of that. So what can I do? And I've learned skills where I can see signals and I can, I'm like, oh, so I can navigate this just like sailing and I can achieve my goals, whatever those goals might be. I can achieve a better condition. Um, and I think lots of people can. Um, but I think that we need to escape this, this paradigm that we have a predominating paradigm of control. And, you know, I've talked about that word a lot. And I think it really come, you know, it was born out of the Industrial Revolution and has been accelerated. But now we're in this collision and the pandemic's a good, you know, a good threshold of where we're crossing over, where people are realizing, hmm, science is good. Science can't tell you what might be. Science can tell you what is or what, you know, you can do a scientific experiment on what happened. Mm -hmm. That scientific experiment can't tell you what's going to happen, right? It can give you a, it can give you a probability, but you can't predict, right? Because there's all these other variables. I mean, go back to your high school um, science fair project. You have to get rid of all the variables. So you make a false experiment from the very first, right? Because the whole purpose is not to reflect the real world. You're supposed to just gain knowledge about a specific thing. And that accumulation of knowledge is very, very good, right? I mean, I, I embrace that. But that can be disrupted by the external world. And that's the part that I think we keep missing. I think... Being able to let things go, basically, is much harder to do than we realize. And one of the things that has personally helped me make peace with some things is my athletic life. <laughs> and for those who don't know, you're an avid athlete. So what are you currently training for? So I'm training for Ironman Maryland in September. Mm -hmm. um, I started a little bit late this year for various reasons. I was injured last year on the race. Um, and so I didn't run until I took off doing significant physical activity, strenuous activity for us as athletes for a good five or six months. Wow. So I just got back at it in the last month or so. So it's, 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 it's been interesting. How many Ironmen have you done? I think September will be number seven. Wow. Yeah. Impressive. But they're they're individual challenges, right? Like um, people are like, oh, and I'm like competing against myself, right? Right? I'm not competing against anybody else. Mm -hmm. Like I'm sharing that experience with those other individuals, right? Because we're on a journey. Mm -hmm. But like as we talked about earlier, right? Everybody's journey is different, mm -hmm. right? We're not starting at the same place. We're starting at the same place geographically, but that's about it, right? Mm -hmm. Like not age, not physical ability, right? I'm not meant to be a swimmer. Like I'm five, 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 six. Like, like I'm not built like a swimmer, right? I'm not built like a cyclist or a runner either. I'm just like I'm not sure. Maybe, <laughs> maybe soccer, which I did as a kid. But so it's uh, I like endurance sports because I think mm -hmm. like you, I think that helps me connect with nature. I like being outside running, you know, through the woods or whatever. And you realize how small you are in this grand, vast world, and it reminds me that every day that I'm not really in control except of myself, right? I was going on that note, going to ask more about how sport contributes to the habits and tactics you use to cultivate your own mental strength. I have accomplished some Ironmans. I wouldn't say that, you know, I'm the, definitely not the fastest guy out there. Um, but again, I'm not competing against everybody else. Mm -hmm. To me, I'm competing against the conditions that I'm given, right? 
So if we use all the way back to our discussion about crisp thinking, I am navigating that complex challenge, right? There are variables at play on that race. Oh, yeah, it's, it's this far to swim, this far to bike, this far to run. And they show you the course. <laughs> but it doesn't, they can't tell you what the temperature is going to be that day. They're not going to tell me how I feel the morning that I wake up or that I have a cold or I got the flu, which has happened on a race, right? You know, it's not a race with the flu. Like, wouldn't advise doing that. The race director can't tell me that my, my PCL is about to rupture, which it did last year, right? No, no one can know those things, right? So then, similarly to what we've been talking about, I have to respond to that mm -hmm. complex environment, and I can use my individual agency in my choices to navigate um, the conditions that I find myself in. I can't change those conditions. I can anticipate some of them. Um, and so I use those events to... It's an analog for everything else that I've talked about, yep. right? Like I personally experience it. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of it every day. And so then when I'm working with others, uh, it keeps me grounded, right? Um, in local context, we talked about context, you know, racing in the mountains is different than racing in Maryland, right? Like one's flat, one's not. Like Chattanooga, Tennessee, it's, you know, mountainous, mm -hmm. right? And changes on the periphery, we talked about that, right? The conditions over the, over the hours of the race change. You start the race in the dark, you finish the race in the dark. But in between there, the sun comes up and the sun goes down and things happen in between there. Many of which you can anticipate some of them, but not all of them, right? I can't know that you on your bike are going to crash right in front of me and then I'm going to run you over and then I'm going to crash. Like I can't, right? Like there's things you just can't control. I'm going to bring it right back to the beginning okay. where I said in the workshop, I spent two days thinking about thinking, but when I'm actively engaged in sport, I'm practicing all of the things that you just talked about today. Right. I, I do both. So I, I think some of my best thinking. Oh, I've had vision quests on my ultra marathon. Yeah, yeah. so, so I use, and I think I told you in a workshop, so I carry my iPhone when I bike and more when I run. I, I wear one to trail running the best, right? Because it's Florida, I have to have lots of water. Yeah. Um, and so I'll be thinking about problem I'm working on. And so I have voice memos because I can write a book if I can capture all my thoughts on a, on a, on a run, mm -hmm. right? But when you come back, all of a sudden they, they, they escape you, mm -hmm. right? So I try to capture some of those, but I agree with you. I, you are practicing everything we've talked about, right? I can not finish a training run because I choose not to, mm -hmm. right? Or I finish because I choose to. Mm -hmm. Those are a choice. Mm -hmm. I go out on a run and it starts thunderstorming. I can't control that it's lightning and thunder. I can choose, right or wrongly, <laughs> continue to run, right? Mm -hmm. In most cases, my wife will track me down and, you know, what she has done is get in the vehicle with Ellie Jen. There's lightning out here mm -hmm. in Florida. If you know. Lightning capital of the world, yeah, apparently. I didn't know that, so I moved here either. Um, so I agree with you on that. Um, I, I encourage everyone to do some kind of endurance something mm -hmm. because I think it, it's analogous and it will help with these skills that we're talking about to navigate complexity, mm -hmm. but help you experience it in a, in a new way. Excellent. I want to end with a rapid fire Q&A. Again, this is to just learn about you more as an individual. So my first question is, what is the latest book that you read? Okay, I won't name that because I'm in a doctoral program. It's a bunch of philosophy, which I would not 
um, but a good one that I have read during this program is called The Axe Maker's Gift, um, which is about the history of of humans making, using technology to solve problems and what the consequences, both good and bad, of that are. Okay. A recent podcast that you enjoyed? I haven't listened to one in the last three weeks because I've been finishing up my doc. I'm, I'm in the middle of my comprehensive exams for my program, and so all, that's all I've been doing. Okay, I understand, and I appreciate the honesty. <laughs> Which is not normal because normally I listen every single week to podcasts. Well, then I'm wondering if I should even ask a TV show or film that you viewed in the past year or two that you well, highly recommend. Oh, well, yeah. Um, so there's, there's two that I think relate to what we've talked about today. One is called The Social Dilemma. Love it. Um, on the, you know, the dangers of social media, and I think it speaks to a lot of things we talked about. And then the second one is called State of Surveillance um, on Vice. It's a documentary film, and it's about Edward Snowden and some other things, but I, I think it's similar to Social mm-hmm. Dilemma, and I think it will open people's eyes to some things that they should open their eyes to. Favorite thing to listen to while you train? Hmm. Swimming. I listen to metal, heavy metal rock music on my waterproof headphones, running, not so much because I need to run slower. So I mm. listen to country music, I love country music, and then biking usually, you know, podcasts or some other things. So I try to do those, those training rides get quite lengthy, four to six hours. So Jordan Peterson or Joe Rogan or somebody else, so I'll find some interesting, you know, guests that they have. Leadership Under Fire podcast, that's why I listen to them as well. Because listening to music for four hours is not I was going beneficial. to ask, do you ever not listen to something while you're training? The 30 days before the race, I don't listen to anything. Why is that? Because uh, on the race, you, you can't have headphones or anything. So I have to train myself to be focused on the pain mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. remind myself that it's a choice to stop or to keep going. And so in those last 30 days, it's uh, difficult. You don't enjoy it at all? No, I do. Okay. <laughs> um, but it's it's a big transition from, you know, training and you're listening to Jordan Peterson for four hours while you ride your bike and then versus you're riding your bike for 80 miles and it's 100 degrees and it's just you, right? Like that, it's just a whole I different. I love so, that. <laughs> um, running is easier for me because I can um, cycling, you know, depending on where I'm riding, I, I have to be more conscious of. You know, my surroundings so that I don't get run over or something like that. So Yeah, I secretly love it. <laughs> Go-to quote or mantra? Chris thinking would be, see the world differently. So That's perfect. <laughs> well, Charlie, thank you so much again for taking the time to be with me today. And I'm so grateful that my first in-person interview in a year and a half was with you. This was so yeah. fun. Thank you for having me. Thank you. The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit Leadership